Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are tuning in for the first time, you can keep up with us. You'll find us on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You will find us wherever you get yours at, at Radio Islam USA. Very simple, easy to remember. Okay, uh, Radio Islam family, I am really happy to have uh, joining us on the line, Sheikh Yusuf Rios. Uh, he has taught Islamic sciences at Al Huda University in Texas, uh, as well as Islamic American Un University in Michigan, and is the director of Shalkani Institute. We welcome him to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we thank you for taking the time to to talk with us, and uh, we've, we we had the benefit of being able to have some some conversation a bit, you know, offline, and I've. I have uh, I've watched and appreciated your social media engagement, the way you've utilized uh, Facebook in particular uh, to uh, to reach out and to to do something that I think most teachers uh, they there is a struggle with uh, captivating an audience and, and relaying information, uh, and I've 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 just I've appreciated watching you do that. So alhamdulillah, you know, may Allah before we even get started, just may Allah continue to bless you uh, in that work. Amen. Um, so, uh, yes, sir. I mean, so uh, you are the director of uh, Shalkani Institute, and I want to share this with the uh, our listeners. Uh, first off, I looked at the mission. The mission is to support the growth of a generation of students of knowledge in the West, aiding them in developing a sound foundation in Islamic sciences and leadership, thought and practices. The chief objective is to be achieved by generating study circles, programming, workshops and coursework that will support learning in a systematic manner infused by traditional and contemporary approaches to education. Um, and that is, you know, that, that's a lot of work, alhamdulillah. Uh, let me ask you first, how did the Shokani uh, Institute come into, come into being? Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Actually, the Shokani Institute came into being while I was a teacher at the Islamic American University in Michigan, originally uh, they had provided me with a, a scholarship and some assistance to study in Egypt, and I had studied Arabic with them. And uh, and when I came back from Egypt, I, I tried to go back to Michigan. The idea was to go into a community where there was an educational base and uh, the hope was to come back with other students and we work together and we build in the community together. Well, most of that dream didn't come to fruition, but what did come to be was that I stayed uh, in Michigan when I came back from Egypt and I worked with them for a short period of time. And they used to have an Arabic program, Arabic uh, studies program, not Arabic language, but uh, catered to the Arabic speakers an Islamic studies program catered to uh, Arabic speakers and the English branch. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching in the English branch and I had some students and because the numbers were so low, they had decided to discontinue the program. And it was not only because the numbers were low, it was also because they were finding that there was not a lot of commitment 
long-term commitment because when you try to launch a university program, mm-hmm. uh, you need a long-term commitment from students. And since, you know, Islamic universities in the U.S. or higher-level institutions are not accredited and, the you know, the the, the same benefits that you find in the, the standard university system are not necessarily there with Islamic uh, universities. They have a difficult time. <clears throat> so when they decided to discontinue, I had students. And so one of the students was actually from Michigan uh, who gave me an extremely hard time with his, his, his uh, thinking. It was a little radicalized at that time in the, in the negative sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and but he he had some sort of driving commitment, and he he asked me, you know, well, what are we going to do? And so, you know, I had that project going on with him. I was trying to aid him, like kind of try to, you know, deconstruct or disentangle his thinking, so that he comes to a more balanced position and he's able to be more functional and and uh and kind of heal himself from whatever it was that he was going through. That's how Shell Candy Institute started. So it it went from uh, working with that brother and um, and two young boys who were entrusted to me by the, their father, the Turkish father, living in the Virginia area, who had entrusted his sons to me to educate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of went from there, and then I started to see that there's no way that I was going to focus in the traditional concept of education, I had to be able to be there for those who are struggling, those who they argue with you and two months later they say, I'm sorry, can we continue learning? And those people who have strong work schedules that are so demanding that they really can't be a traditional student. Right. So the Shell Candy Institute has really catered to that type of um, cultural reality and to people who are not, you know, in the in the norm, so to speak of. Of, of you know seeking knowledge those who, who struggle with it those who, who don't always have the time for it and even those who maybe economically they can't do it let me that's, ask you this that's pretty much how it started let me ask you this Sheikh. uh when it comes to uh, th- this access you know to knowledge to beneficial knowledge you know the and i think you've, you've just outlined this that it is an impediment it's a hardship for some to be able to uh to go and study at you know at um as uh, azhar or to you know go to Medina University or, or any one of these traditional uh, centers of learning. Um, do you think that uh, with teachers like yourself, uh, institutions that we have here, you know, in the states, you know, Zaytuna, American Islamic College, um, uh, do you see that this this idea or this mission of bringing that information back and making yourself accessible that that needs to be or should be at, uh, that that should be a uh, a part of the, not just the impetus, but a part of the mission of those who are able to do so, they're able to go and come back. Uh, do you think that is always present with those who go? And uh, if not, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, not everybody who goes is going to come back and come into the community and try to stay committed for a number of different reasons. One, is the economic behind it is very trying. Um, the other issue is that, what I mean by that is that, you know, basically there's not, you know, a lot of income that comes along with this. Right. And then the second thing is that a lot of times when people do come back with their enthusiasm and maybe they don't have 
the structural idea, the institutional idea, they want to come back and at least work in the massage. They don't find what they they thought they would find, so they end up veering away. They don't really stay in the massage. Although I feel everyone is obligated to at least be able to uh, teach themselves and their families at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, we would like that they will come back into the community. Like Islamic American University probably was the only university that was really uh, raising, you know, they were in some cases giving 100000 for a student. You know, mm. so they were really committed money-wise. And you have some people, like people like Jamal Diwan uh, came out of that project who's in California. You know, you also had uh, Yahya Ederer, who's an imam in North Carolina. Uh, even to some extent, for a short period of time, Imam Suheb Webb was part of the process. Uh, and there was a number of others. There's... Um, uh, a sheikh, he's an African-American, his name is Sheikh Tariq Abdurashid, who resides in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has an IT background. He went and studied in Jordan, and, and it was it was a hefty tag. It was it was about six figures. And he, he's, uh, he's actually himself and uh, myself and another brother. We also have an institute in Cleveland. It's called the Malcolm Shabazz Institute. Mm. For for um, in specific for black and and Islamic studies, and uh, it's not really launched because he's been wanting to really uh, focus on it. But he came back and he kind of slid back. But I feel as though we should come back with the idea of trying to work in the community. But we will need some fine tuning to understand how to fit in, right? Because we can't always come in and, and think that we're going to take the lead, so to speak. Right. We have to, uh, and that's what has happened with a lot of students that have gone. They have come back and have not understood how to close the gap, the generation cultural gap, even though I don't think it's 100% real, it's there between mm-hmm. ourselves and the elders in our community. And what has happened with those who have studied is they come back and either they feel displaced or marginalized or sometimes they become destructive in that they want to correct everything and they don't learn how to have a sense of continuity of, of struggle. And so a lot of the, especially in the indigenous community I'm referring to, so then you find that they, you know, they don't have the ability to really, uh, you know, solidify relationships with the elders, the older imams, and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And I understand it's difficult, but it has to still be done. Right. The other part would be to create your own institutions. Mm-hmm. And I think that people, you may find a little more interest with that to create your own institution and kind of learn how to freelance with the community so that you have some uh, some stability and some uh, sanity. Right. Yeah, there definitely is. Um, I think that there is an expectation um, of people, uh, particularly those who, who go to study, uh, whether it, it, it is uh, private uh, study or whether it is where they go overseas to study, um, uh, that they will come back and do something. But I think the point that you raise is one that doesn't really get enough, uh, it doesn't get enough uh, consideration, and that is the economic, uh, the economic impact. Uh, the fact that, you know, people still have to put food on the table, uh, and if you're looking to impose that, that duty on somebody, then it should be something it should be something that's considered. Um, but when it comes to the, you know, to the urban centers and drawing from the history of America where 
uh, I would say our most influential social reformer, uh, speaking of um, uh, Elijah Muhammad, uh, and the Nation of Islam, the transformative effect that that organization had uh, on oppressed communities, and this is all without traditional understandings. Um, how do you evaluate these same communities who now have, uh, who now seems to, in some cases, are unaffected today? Uh, even though we do have, we have clear religious understandings. We have, um, we have people who have, you know, who have studied. Uh, but more importantly, uh, there appears to be less of an investment in really transforming those communities. Do you think, does this also go back to, once again, uh, an econ economic consideration? Or is it, uh, do you think that there is just simply, that is attributed to something else? There's a number of issues that play themselves out uh, till today that have their roots in the past. And when we start talking about structural injustice and we start talking about, uh, you know, the structural injustice is not really understood very well by a lot of Muslims. Like we, we, we kind of know that there's the idea of racism and this and that, but how it plays out legally and culturally and psychologically and economically and politically, you know, it, people really don't understand that. And so you have to have a message and the, I think the Nation of Islam at least understood that point. You have to have a message that's directed toward empowering the people on, on those levels, at least at the emotional, economic, you know, and, uh, and, and spiritual level, mm -hmm. so that they can function in the other realms. And, uh, and to be honest with you, I don't think that Muslims in particular uh, have been very effective at that, and, uh, at, the, at that generating the application of Islam in such a way that it's transformative, right? Mm -hmm. And so in our urban centers, we're finding difficulty, you know, case in point, like Philadelphia. Yeah. Philadelphia, we have a veneer of Islam. We have a lot of good success stories, but it hasn't it hasn't formulated itself into, the practice of Islam hasn't formulated itself to a point where you can see that Islam is actually transforming the environment taking them from environments that are, are genocidal and homicidal and, and and so on and so forth into environments that are whole. Mm -hmm. You know, so the message is there, people are coming in, but the transformative side is lost. Uh, as far as, you know, as far, that's as far as the environment is concerned, as far as the message is concerned. But to be honest with you, I think also, you know, there, there's a lot of issues with the history overall. Again, the continuity the continuity piece, not many people have figured out how to continue to grow and still have continuity, maybe with the exception of the War of Dean community, but then there's also the generation gap. Mm -hmm. You know, in a lot of the communities, a lot of the youth broke away from the elders, yeah. or, or the youth were never brought in, and that has its own history. But I personally think you know, and this this can we can go on for for hours, hours, and, and maybe months on this type of topic. Mm -hmm. But I think that we're failing to really uh, learn from the experience of the nation of Islam. Those of us, especially who either came through that channel, or we had some affinity or or some sympathy with what was trying to, what was the effort, what was the movement about. Right. 
we we are failing to like learn from the experience and, and try to see how that applies in today's time, mm. right? And and uh, but we're being forced into the same conditions. By the way, you know we, we're starting to see similar conditions in today's time. I'll give you a case in point in one of the communities in in uh, in Texas, I believe it was recently. There was a sign that was warning uh, black folk from being caught in the area, either walking or working. You know, and uh, and it came out in the news, and so you're starting to see that kind of old school racism reemerge, and so you you have a lot of social problems again, which are not being addressed by people of religion, right. not uh, uh, by the by the Christians, not by the Muslims, even to a certain extent, even not by the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. You know, so so you have this problem where there's a gap between the poor people and those who are struggling. And and uh, and the institution of religion in the general sense, right? You know, and so th- that that's a problem. And the and the nation of Islam in specific, you you saw that there was a targeting of those who were disenfranchised, right? Right? They weren't looked at as a liability, but they were looked at as an asset. Aside, we know all the problems with the nation of Islam. We're not painting it nice and this and that. Mm-hmm. But I think Sunni Muslims need to focus on how to transform what will otherwise be called the liability into, you know, in, into an asset and move away then from the from the materialistic, capitalistic way of looking at human beings mm-hmm. and then see how we can focus on really building the community. But first, people have to have buy-in, you know, and then once they have buy-in, then, you know, then they can move to the real work of prophethood, which is dealing with people and dealing with their conditions and elevating them and preserving their dignity and helping them to uh you know to have a lifestyle which will lead them to a lot about a quarterly and uh, i know i kind of talked in the general sense but i don't know if that hit home no 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 I, I think that that definitely is um that's definitely relevant and i think uh, that that's a a great response to the to the question and it leads me into well two things first is when it comes to that particular history um it's often looked at in a in a segregated manner uh, and, and what I mean by that is when we talk about the Nation of Islam, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, that particular um, experience, it is often seen as simply an African-American uh, experience or history uh, and not looked at in uh, not looked at through the lens of it being a part of the history of, of Islam, whether you are indigenous or whether you, you know, you have uh, immigrated here. But it's not a history that is always uh, that's not always looked at or, or looked at with ownership. Uh, and because of that, there's a I think there's there's a, a devaluation uh, of it. And it becomes more of a conversation about uh, uh, dogma and school of thought or just being, you know, just just being something that's not understood as opposed to looking at what is the ideal um, outcome of properly practiced religion and that's going to always have a social uh, a social impact and so instead of looking at the social concerns of that particular time and how that uh how the organization uh impacted the the social uh conditions how it impacted people uh and and gave uh, gave folks dignity and, and purpose and pushed against uh this white supremacist narrative that kind of gets pushed out the way and it becomes just a conversation on 
um, or, 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 or on theology. Uh, and I think that we, we do ourselves a, a disservice uh, in general by not being able to see it for what, uh, see the beauty and the value uh, in, in what it represented, which is really, uh, it was stewardship and it was taking responsibility for a community. So let, would, you, would you speak to this idea? Uh, and I think you, you mentioned this a little bit, uh, but bringing the prophet's mission and his impact on society uh, during this time uh, into conversation with the spiritual, the social, the economic, political, intellectual, et cetera, uh, concerns of today, which begin with the individual. How does knowledge uh, and access to it have an impact on that? Well, the issue of knowledge, the issue of knowledge is that even when it comes back to the, uh, you know, just taking a, a second, even when it comes back to the point that you were, ta- you were just talking about or talking to, mm-hmm. how we understand the nation of Islam and the history, you know, of black America in relation to Islam and is that part of the general Islamic history or no? I think that, or the, even the impact of the nation of Islam, how we understand that when we look at Timbuktu overall, or we look at Al-Andalus, mm-hmm. we saw that in those communities, there were civilizations, and they dealt with knowledge on varying levels. It wasn't just the issue of the study of Revelation or the study of the Quran and the Sunnah, but they saw that the Quran and the Sunnah opened us up uh, to being stewards of the message and being vicegerents, and that meant that we had to take a particular role in history and in time and and so on and so forth. And so you began to see that there was an imperative among the ulama or the scholars mm. to put an emphasis on knowledge in the general sense. So so what we're lacking right now is the, the whole issue of, you know, of sociology, the whole issue of psychology, the whole issue of studying, like Ibn Khaldun, he studied the rise and fall of civilization. Right. You know, and so these are these are all Quranic topics. And so what happens is that we we don't have the proper frame to really study things, you know, and we, we and, and that and that creates a problem in our community. It sets us back. You know, it sets us back. I think that when you start talking about the role of knowledge is, first of all, at a certain point, we have to ask, how is the knowledge, you know, beneficial to us? You know, and how is it uh, that the knowledge is going to help our condition, right? And after understanding the basics, the basics, the universal basics of Islam in belief and in practice, we have to start getting into other questions. The prophetic life gives us the framework to understand that Islam touches on every aspect of life. There's no way that you can deal with life issues as a human being. We find even that in uh, whether it was gender issues, those issues were dealt with, whether it was issues of ethnicity and tribe, you know, and, and, uh, and origin and so on and so forth. Even the issue, I don't like using the term race because race is, is an issue that's kind of conjured up, but for the sake of simplicity, the issue of race. We look at the last sermon of the Prophet wasallam, and we find that that was dealt with. Mm-hmm. We find the issue of economics is dealt with. The prophetic model is lost right now in education overall. Right. And, and so as a framework, when we have that prophetic model and in and, and Chicago, you guys just had the Sierra conference. Mm-hmm. This is an imperative that some of the scholars say that we should keep that study of the prophetic life alive. Right. It shouldn't just be an issue of a celebration, just of like his birthday and to honor him. 
you know, it, but there should be a constant study, you know, of the prophetic life to see how it is that that applies to our reality and to see how it is that it, uh, we can measure how people are calling to Islam. Mm-hmm. And see, that's one of the things that the nation of Islam may not have had some theological points correct, right? And they may have, you know, uh, exaggerated some points on race or may even have had some issues that were problematic or even some issues which were unbelief. But the overall framework of addressing family, community, individual, so on and so forth, that's very prophetic. Right. Right. That's very prophetic. And the consequence to losing that type of framework is exactly what we see in the statement that Imam Abdul Malik, who was actually from Masjid al-Taqwa, who was, you know, Masjid al-Taqwa in Brooklyn was started by, uh, in part by Imam Suraj Wahaj, who came out of the Nation of Islam. That's right. And so one of the debates that he's been having for the last year is what is our role, especially on the East Coast, given the, given the gentrification and, the, and inflation and so on and so forth. And one of the things that he said recently was that in Brooklyn, there's about 70 to 100 Islamic institutions, including Masajid. Mm-hmm. And only two of them are owned by African-Americans or at least run by African-Americans. Right. And so the consequence of losing the proper framework of how to operate, that prophetic framework that tells us, you know, that we should be about building, right? Even, even Imam Warfdin, he had the concept of New Africa about building. You have a societal vision. You have a community vision. It's not just the issue of creed in the sense of, I believe these tenets, and I look this particular way, and I just go on, you know, as an individual in the world, mm-hmm. right? So as a consequence of that, you find that the community is completely being marginalized. With the, like, for instance, in Brooklyn, if they're not able to maintain those two institutions, given the economics behind that, it may go down to zero. Mm. And that's the past. You know, I'm talking about, in this particular case, African-Americans having their own institutions. We have, in Cleveland, Ohio, we have a masjid that was built by Muhammad Ali. Right. Masjid Balao. And we're kind of hoping, it, it, it was with his assistance and others, it was the first masjid that was built from the ground up by African-Americans in Cleveland that even changed the zoning laws. Mm-hmm. Because before it wasn't permitted to change the building towards the Qibla. And so, but now when you look at the generations, the generations are all older. So there's a possibility that that institution and another one that they have may not exist in the future unless you have a change. And so the thing is that knowledge in general is not enough, but as it, we have to have an understanding of knowledge and how to apply and, and how to build community. We have some messages. Nowadays, there are $3 million massages, million-dollar massages, half a million dollars. These massages are empty. Mm-hmm. So even though, like, for instance, uh, Imam Abdul Malik would say something like, there's 70 to 100 institutions, at the same time, many of those institutions may not be fully functional the way that we, as an indigenous community, envision a practice of Islam. Right. We envision a communal practice of Islam, or at least that's how our elders did, a community practice of Islam. A, a, a practice of Islam in which we're supporting each other in trade, in education, in which we're intermarrying with each other. That's the prophetic model. Our mm-hmm. elders had that correct, even if they didn't have details of theology correct. They right. may not have had all of the fit correct. They may not have had Lugat al Arabiya. You know, they may not have had the Arabic language. But as a general framework, 
they had the framework that was correct. It was just some of the details that were off and maybe some points in Akita that needed to be reformed. And uh, because we never saw it that way, uh, we now we're we're beginning to see a discontinuity, and we're beginning to find ourselves in a situation where even knowledge is not helping us now. Mm. Right, the framework has to be there in place, and and part of that framework is learning how to have leadership. You know, learning how to have leadership, and learning what it means to be a good followership, along with getting our share of the dunya. Right, right. We have to have an economic empowerment piece in a capitalist system. Or else Islam will not survive. And because you know, that's, that's if there's interesting. there's no money to support Islam, mm. then uh, the Dawah can't continue to move forward. And I think a lot of us, we haven't understood that piece, right? And that's why uh, that's why the knowledge by itself is not working. I know, think it's important, Shif. Because the economy Shif. is driving most of our activities Shif. and most of uh, where we want to go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really appreciate you bringing back this point of the... Um, uh, of, of getting our share of the dunya. Uh, and I think this uh, it's important for me for a number of reasons, uh, one of which I'll share is that uh, there is a move to try to push people away, push Muslims away from uh, from any investment in this life. Uh, from uh, you know it's not it's not necessarily asceticism because there are folks who are themselves, uh, invested who are you know mining uh, the resources they are profiting there in industry they're in different businesses and such but they are telling others that this is not this this life this earth this is this creation this material life uh, you have no place in it so I, I appreciate you bringing that point back up because you know without that you have no stability you know you don't have a leg to stand on if you can't produce anything if you're not uh, if you're not invested uh, uh, in this, you know, in in this, uh, in in this life, you know, in any because we all eat. I mean, until you get to a point where you don't have to eat, you don't have to sleep, then you need to make sure that you have some type of uh, engagement with this material world. Um, can you talk a bit about because when you mentioned the the, the sirah and uh, it, it being something that should not just be relegated to simple celebrations, but something that is a part of uh, there's a lively discourse around it as a way to inform how we uh, see ourselves and we see uh, community life. Um, the, the Sierra Conference that we just had uh, here at Sound Vision this past weekend, um, one of the presenters, uh, Imam, uh, Imam, uh, Imam Wesley uh, LeBron, um, he was his presence there was was noted not just in uh, in his in his presentation, but it was noted that there were a number of Latino Muslims who were in attendance specifically because they knew that he was going to be there. Now, I want to get your thoughts on uh, on two things. So uh, first, well, I guess it's, it's, it's one thought, and that is the growth of the Latino population in the U.S. in general. Right. is lar the largest minority uh, right now. Uh, but this growth also runs parallel to the growth of the Latino Muslim community uh, in general. So as that growth continues, uh, inshallah, can you what are your thoughts specifically about the state of connectivity between that exists between the African-American uh, Muslim community, the Latino Muslim community, uh, uh, specifically in our urban centers as these two communities? When we talk about black and brown, that's that those who are we are, you know, we're describing and who are dealing with the brunt of issues uh, when we talk about 
uh, police violence, uh, mass incarceration, or any of the ills, um, we particularly talk about these two groups sharing a disproportionate um, uh, number or being disproportionately represented in, in dealing with those issues. Can you talk a bit about how you see that connectivity uh, existing? That connectivity has been there for a while in different communities, and there's a, 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 a fissure or a break or a gap in certain geographical regions. Yes. Like we're seeing some problems, aside from the Muslim community, mm -hmm. but in the general sense, in the general population outside of our community, you find that the blacks and the Latinos, like for instance, uh, in the West Coast, there there's a different type of relationship. And I think we need to be very cautious of what's going on there because there's violence between the two communities. And some of that stuff is a carryover from the street culture, the drug cartels, and the gang violence, and so on and so forth. And it, it creates a bad image as far as the relationships between the two communities are concerned. But when we look at the history of, like, for instance, Chicago, or we look at the history of New York City, especially in New York, when we start to... Let's just take uh, Arturo Chomberg as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, Arturo Chomberg was, you know, from Puerto Rico, uh, and he, he was one of the ones who, who responded to the question that, uh, you know, blacks don't have any history. So the consequence of that was that he he made a move to uh, to refute that by collecting one of the most foundational libraries on Black history, which eventually became the uh, the Chomberg Institute, mm -hmm. which is headed actually right now I think by someone from the Nation of Islam, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it became one of the the biggest resources for Black history and for you know Black studies in general or African studies. In, uh, in African studies in the diaspora. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the relationship in a place like New York City, I keep emphasizing that, has been huge. Uh, we have the group Alianza Islamica, who, uh, who, was, uh, who was one of the older groups, the oldest Latino Muslim organization. They had community and everything. And, you know, they're also... Some of their members were came out of the Young Lords, which was basically the you know the 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 other side of the the Black Panther Party, mm -hmm. and so you have a tight history that's there. You know you have a tight history that's there, uh, politically, civil in the civil rights issues, culturally, ethnically, you know, and some communities more than others because not all Latinos are of one ilk. Right. You know, there's different uh, there's different orientations and different histories, but there's a general history. But you find that, you know, um, I like to use the Arabic term, Namudic Farid, there's a very beneficial model, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, uh, in, the, in the New York reality. And that, you know, the black and the Latino community struggle through a lot of issues yeah. with each other, with themselves, with the society. And I'm talking about Muslims. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm talking about Muslims. And then they came to a point where they had to realize, you know, there has to be a sense of maturing and growing and building our own to be able to address these needs. And that was, and, and honestly, from what I hear from one of our elders, Yahya Figueroa, uh, you know, a lot of the black elders, they pushed that. They pushed the Latino community to come to its own and uh, to come to its own maturity, you know, and try to take a charge of its own affairs. Although, at the same time, looking at both communities as, you know, brothers and sisters, as as one community, but definitely there's some some different needs in, in each tribe, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. sometimes that they don't overlap and sometimes there's issues that do overlap mm -hmm. right and so that i think that moving forward uh, you know the black and the latino community muslims in specific need to get themselves together and, and kind of chart out how it is that we're going to uh, you know carve out our future right you know as the as the millennial millennium changes you know and we go into different you know in a different direction of life and how the the world is being restructured, we have to really find our place, you know, as as uh, as Muslim as as a Muslim ummah, and in specific as, as as people that come from a similar history and background, you know, and are tied together by you know by struggle and by blood, right. and by experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that right now that's what we're trying to do at the moment with the Latino Dawa. Mm. Alhamdulillah. Uh all right, let me ask this. This I think this this would be our my last question for you, uh, and that is, uh, I mentioned in the introduction. I talked about your presence on uh, on Facebook and social media, and this is a really uh, it, it's a crowded field, uh, and the 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 platform is such that maybe those who don't know uh, can't necessarily discern who they're listening to. Um, because, you know, if you got fingers, you know, then you can, you can type, uh, or, you know, if you want to go live, you can just go, go live and, uh, and, and it's not necessarily, uh, certain that the individual that you're listening to is somebody that you should be listening to, or maybe you need to listen with some real caution. Uh, can you talk a bit about your own, uh, process as how you go about using uh, social media to engage the public uh, and, you know, Muslims and non-Muslims, obviously. Uh, and what is your first priority in that engagement? And, and how do you separate yourself from, you know, from the, from the fray? Because like I said, you know, it's a, it's a crowded field. Right. I think that, you know, it's complicated. It's, it's not easy at all. You're right about that. I think that one of the challenges in today's time with regard to knowledge is that sifting through the information and that that really needs people to focus on you know a sound islamic education right. in order to be able to do that but as far as myself i try to keep it you know i try to keep it humble i try to keep it if you notice you know it, it, even on my facebook page there's no long biography there's no <laughs> you know i did this and did that yeah it's just and, you know, and, and if i could interrupt you if, if i could huh? if i could interrupt you quickly um i gave uh radio Sound family i gave you a, a seriously truncated uh version of sheikh yusuf's um bio uh and i would uh, and and at times that can be a little challenging and, and it's more so for the purposes of time but just to just to kind of uh, go a little bit further with the point that you're making as far as humility is concerned uh sometimes humility is misunderstood uh don't misunderstand it in his case so i, I would and, and when we close we'll, we'll go to some contact info and all that kind of stuff but uh i apologize please continue so so you know i just tried to keep it at a point where i can talk to people so one of the things i tried to do is talk about cultural issues which may not be popular to talk about in the masjid Right. You know, other thing is, you know, try to uh, pass on uh, information about knowledge. And another thing is to try to spot people that are seem to be having mental health issues and try to reach out, and, you know, and be kind of like a support for them in that environment. And try to also, you know, you know, kind of bring some moderation to some issues that may be a little out there. Right. 
but definitely try to still keep, you know, relevant to what's going on socially and, you know, and politically and how it relates to our communities and, and try to yeah, work through some issues there and, and just try to show that social media can be a building platform. It can be a, a platform where we connect. It doesn't have to be something that digresses and devolves into, into you know, the, the common battling and, and arguing and debating and, and, you know, and cursing social media and saying, you know, I'm out of Facebook. You yeah. know, it doesn't have to be like that. It could actually be a tool for community building. And I think it's very important for people who play any leadership role to be active with the community and kind of get that side, even if it takes away from your your cachet and your status or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, but it's important to be connected with the people and for for there to be accessibility. Mm-hmm. You know, and um and uh and it's a certain crowd. Every crowd is not on there. The younger generation they're using different media. Right. You know, but um, every media has has its place, and that's kind of the the goal. There is is to is to use it as a platform for education and and communication, you know, and, and somewhat, uh, you know, encouragement. I won't say official counseling, uh, because of the legality of that, but at least to be able to refer people to resources if they're having breakdowns. And there's people we've seen them, you know, we've seen people that are collapsing, you know, we've seen people that are suicidal. We see. A lot of things in the Muslim community, you know what I'm saying, um, we're seeing that. And I think that's why we as a community need not take that lightly and we need to be involved. The other thing is people are lonely, you know, and that's where, you know, social media is where they connect. So we should try to have authentic, uh, you know, uh, relationships on social media, you know, and, so, and, and that supports people. You know, it could be the single mom. It could be the single father. It could be the new convert. It could be the struggling Muslim. It could be the new Muslim. It could be, you know, whoever. Right. You know, but and then it could be the academic Muslim too. You know, there's some scholars that are on, and periodically they throw out some ideas. And so I think it builds it builds community, and that's kind of the goal. You know, but I also want us as an indigenous community to have a voice. Yes. Right, and that's kind of what, um, you know, what you know, I'm trying to do with that. That we have a voice, and uh, and we give a voice to each other. It's just not like I have a voice and I silence you. And I'm the man, and you're not that type of concept, but, but that we encourage and we uh, we build each other. Alhamdulillah, inshallah. Uh, can you tell, uh, share with the Radio Sam family how they can keep up with you, uh, social media or otherwise? Right now, I'm with Imam Wesley, myself. We're, we're doing the Esperanza Community Hub. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we have a page on social media. Then I have my own page, Yusuf Reels, uh, and, and it's pretty accessible. Uh, and uh, the Esperanza Community Hub is like the project that we're working out of, you know, and we have we actually have a center in, in Passaic, New Jersey. I actually came back to the East Coast uh, for that purpose so that we can continue that project. And, um, and pretty much that's how you can contact. Uh, you can contact me. OK. Alhamdulillah. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Um, it has been uh, it has definitely been uh, an enjoyable conversation and may Allah continue to uh, bless your work uh, and uh, to, to make us all uh, accountable. Inshallah. So. All right. Radio Islam family. We're going to take a short break. I emphasize short, but we, we will be back in just just a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEB 1450 AM.